0: I wish you all a Merry Christmas as we prepare for the holiday season. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all of the listeners who I heard from during the week. A huge thank you to all of the new supporters on Patreon. I'm ever so grateful for your monthly financial contribution to the podcast. Thank you to Matthew Wood with your monthly contribution. Thank you also to Mark Harrington for your monthly contribution. And finally... Diane Brackfartney for your monthly contribution and kind message on Patreon. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. The podcast is completely free and it is thanks to listeners like you that allow me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. To each of you all patrons and supporters, I am truly appreciative of you and your support. Thank you also to all of the listeners on Spotify that participated in the Q&A for one of the most recent episodes. White Fang 20231, Will Hagen and Jada667. I appreciate your comments. And finally, to everyone who left a review on iTunes, thank you DakDak888 for your lovely review on iTunes US. Thank you to Ali Kleck from Canada for your great review that you left me. Fantastic. And to Weber Fever from Canada, I'm glad you're finding the podcast nice and boring. If you listen to the podcast and find it beneficial, one way you can support is to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. There are a lot of people struggling with sleep out there, and my goal is to help as many people get the sleep that they need. If you would like you can always reach out to me at com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Marie Antoinette by Hilaire Belloc. Introductory note. The 18th century which had lost the appetite for tragedy and almost the comprehension of it, was granted, before it closed, the most perfect subject of tragedy which history affords. The Queen of France, whose end is but an episode in the story of the revolution, stands apart in this, that while all around her were achieved the principal miracles of the human will, she alone suffered, by a unique exception, a fixed destiny against which the will seemed powerless. In person, she was not considerable, in temperament, not exalted, but her fate was enormous. It is profitable, therefore, To abandon for a moment the contemplation of those great men who recreated in Europe the well-ordered state and to admire the exact convergence of such accidents as drew around Marie Antoinette an increasing pressure of doom. These accidents united at last. They drove her with a precision that was more than human, right to her predestined end. In all the extensive record of her actions, there is nothing beyond the ordinary kind. She was petulant or gay, impulsive or collected, according to the mood of the moment, acting in everything as a woman of her temper, red-headed, intelligent and arduous, will always do. She was moved by changing circumstance to this or that, as many million of her sort had been moved before her. But her chance friendships failed, not in mere disappointments, but in ruin. Her lapses of judgment betrayed her, not to stumbling, but to an abyss. Her small neglected actions matured unseen, and reappeared prodigious in the catastrophe of her life as torturers, to drag her to the scaffold. Behind such causes of misfortune, as can at least be traced in some appalling order, there appear, as we read her history, causes more dreadful because they are mysterious and unreasoned, ill-omened dates, fortunes quite unaccountable, and continually, a dark coincidence, reawaken in us the native dread of destiny, which the faith, after centuries of power, has hardly exercised. The business, then, of this book is not to recount from yet another aspect, that decisive battle whereby political justice was recovered for us all, nor to print, once more in accurate sequence, the life of a queen whose actions have been preserved, in the minutest detail, but to show a lady whose hands, for all the freedom of their gesture, were moved by influences other than her own, and whose feet, though their steps, seemed wayward and self-determined, were ordered for her in one path that led inexorably to its certain goal. Marie Antoinette, Chapter 1 The Diplomatic Revolution Europe which carries the fate of the whole world, lives by a life which is in contrast to that of every other region, because that life, though intense, is inexhaustible. There is present, therefore, in her united history, a dual function of maintenance and of change such as can be discovered neither in any one of her component parts nor in civilization's exterior to her own. Europe alone of all human groups is capable of transforming herself ceaselessly, not by the copying of foreign models, but in some creative way from within. She alone has the gift of moderating all this violent energy, of preserving her ancient life, and by an instinct whose action is now abrupt, now imperceptibly slow, of dissolving whatever products of her own energy may be normal to her being. These dual forces are not equally conspicuous. The force that preserves us in general, popular, slow, silent and beneath us all, The force that makes us diversified and full of life, shines out in peaks of action. The agents and the manifestations of the conserving force do not commonly present themselves as the chief personalities and the most remarkable events of our long record. The agents and the manifestations of the force that perpetually transform us are arresting figures and catastrophic actions. Those who keep us, what we are, for the most part will never be known. They are millions. Those, on the other hand, who have brought upon our race its great novelties of mood or of vesture The battles they have won, the philosophies they have framed and imposed, the polities they have called into existence, they and their works fill history. That power which has forbidden us to perish uses servants often impersonal or obscure. It is most likely to be discovered at work in the permanent traditions of the populace and its effects are but rarely visible until they appear solid, and established by a process which is rather that of growth than of construction. That power which keeps the mass moving, glitters upon the surface of it and is seen. There are nevertheless, in this perennial and hidden task of maintaining Europe, Certain exceptional events, which the date is clear, the result immediate, and the authors conspicuous. Of early examples, the victory of Constantine in the 4th century, the defeat of Abdul Rahman in the 8th, may be cited. Among the lesser ones of later times is a decision, which was taken in the middle of the 18th century by the French and Austrian governments and to which historians have given the name the Diplomatic Revolution. To comprehend or even to follow the career of Marie Antoinette, it is essential to seize the nature and the gravity of that rearrangement of national forces For it determined all her life, to the great alliance between France and Austria, and by which such a rearrangement was effected. She showed every episode of her drama. Her marriage, her eminence, her sufferings, and her death were each directly the consequence of that compact. Its conclusion coincided with her birth. From childhood, she was dedicated to it as a pledge, a bond, and at last a victim. Though, therefore, that treaty can occupy but little place in the pages, which deal with her vivid life, a life lived after the signing of the document, and after its most noisy consequences had disappeared. Yet the instrument must be grasped at the outset, and must remain permanently in the mind of all who would understand the Queen of France and her disaster, for it was her mother who made the alliance, the statesman who presided over all her fortunes, planned and achieved it. It stands throughout her 40 years like a fixed horoscope, drawn at birth, or a sentence pronounced and sure to be fulfilled. The diplomatic revolution of the 18th century sprang, like every other major thing in modern history, from the religious schism of the 16th. In that vast disturbance of the Reformation, which threatened so grievously the culture of Europe, which maimed forever the life of the Renaissance, and which is only now beginning to subside, had broken the national tradition of Gaul, as it did that of Britain. It may confidently be asserted that European civilization would have perished There was not left on the shores of the Mediterranean a sufficient reserve of energy to re indoctrinate the West. A welter of small states, hopelessly separated by the violence and self sufficiency of the new philosophy, would each have gone down the roads an individual goes when he forgets or learns to despise traditional rules of living and the corporate sense of mankind. That interaction, which is the life of Europe, would have disappeared. A short period of intense local activities would have been followed by a general repose. The unity of the Western world would have failed, and the spirit of Rome would have vanished as utterly from her deserted provinces, as has that of Assyria from hers. If, on the other hand, the French had chosen the earliest moment of the Reformation to lead the popular instinct of Europe against the Reformers and to re-establish the unity, if as early as the reign of Francis I, they had imagined a species of crusade why then the schism would have been healed by the sword. The humanity of the renaissance would have become a permanent influence in our lives, rather than a heroic episode whose vigor we regret, but cannot hope to restore, and the discovery of antiquity, the thorough awakening of the mind, would have impelled Europe towards new and glorious fortunes, the nature of which we cannot even conjecture. So differently did the course of history turn, for it so happened that the French, whose temperament, whose unbroken Roman legend, and whose geographical position made them the decisive centre of the struggle, The French hesitated for 200 years. Their religion indeed, they preserved. The attempt to force upon the French doctrines convenient. In France as in England, to the wealthy merchants, the intellectuals and the squires, was met by popular risings. Those of the French as they were, the more sanguinary so were also the most successful. The first massacre of Saint Bartholomew, when the Catholic leaders were killed in the south, was not forgotten in the north, and after the second massacre of Saint Bartholomew in Paris had avenged it, the reformation could never establish in France the oligarchic polity which it ultimately imposed upon England and Holland. In a word, the Catholic reaction in France was sufficiently violent to recover the tradition of the state. But the full consequences of that reaction did not follow, nor did France support the general Catholic instinct of Europe outside the French boundaries because allied with the faith to which the nation was so profoundly attached, and had barely preserved, was the political power of the Spanish-Austrian Empire, which the French nation and its leaders detested and feared. It is difficult for us today to comprehend the might of Spain during the century of the Reformation, and still more difficult to grasp that external appearance of overwhelming strength as the years proceeded, tended more and more to exceed her actual power. The supremacy of Spain over Europe resided in a dynasty and not in a national idea it did not take the form of overriding treaties or of attempting the partition of weaker states, for it was profoundly Christian and it was military. In 20 ways the position of Spain differed from the hegemony which some modern European state might attempt to exercise over its fellows but it is possible to arrive at some conception of what that empire was if we remember that it reposed upon a vast colonial system which Spain alone seemed capable of conducting with success, that it monopolized the production of gold, and that it depended upon a command of the sea which was secured to it, by an invincible fleet. To such advantages there must be further added an armed force, not only by the far largest, best trained in Europe, but mainly composed of the best fighters as well. A circumstance more important than all the rest, an extent of dominion due to the union of the Austrian and Spanish houses which gave the Charles V and his successors the whole background, as it were upon which the map of Europe was painted in the sea of the emperor's continental possessions. Apart from a few insignificant principalities, France alone survived, an intact island with ragged boundaries menaced upon every side. For the emperor then master of the peninsula, of the Germanies and of the new world, was everywhere by sea and almost everywhere by land, a pressing foe. However much this Spanish-Austrian power might stand, as it did stand, for European traditions and for the faith of civilization which France had elected to preserve, It was impossible for the French crown and nation not to be opposed to its political power if that crown and that nation were to survive. The smaller nations of the north, the English, the low countries, etc., were in less peril than the French, for these were now the only considerable exception to and were soon to be the rivals of the Spanish-Austrian state. Had the Armada found fair weather, Philip might have been crowned at Westminster, but the English, united, isolated and already organised as a commercial oligarchy, would have fought their way out from foreign domination as thoroughly as did the Dutch. The duty of the French was other. Their independence was not threatened. It was rather their dignity and special soul which were in peril, and which had to be preserved from digestion into the all-surrounding influence of Spain. To preserve her soul, France gave, unconsciously perhaps, As a people but with acute consciousness, as a government, her whole energy is during four generations. The defense succeeded, though a dozen such civil tumults are a native to the French blood, and through a long eclipse of their national power, they treasured and built up their reserves, The French did not achieve this object of theirs without a compromise odious to their clear spirit. In their secular opposition to the Spanish-Austrian power, it was the business of their diplomatists to spare the little Protestant states and to use them as a pack for the worrying of Great Austria, whom they dreaded and would break down The constant policy of Henri VI of Reiklou of Mazarin, was to strengthen the Protestant principalities of North Germany to meet halfway the rising Puritanism of England and even at home to tolerate an organized, opulent and numerous body At a time when it was death to say mass in England, the wealthy Calvinist, just beyond the channel, at Dieppe, for instance, was protected with all the force of the law from the fanaticism or indignation of his fellow citizens. He could convene his synods openly, could hold office at law or municipal affairs, And was even granted a special form of representation, and a place in the advisory bodies of the state. All this was done not to secure internal order, which would perhaps have been better affirmed in France, as it was in England, by the vigorous persecution of the minority but to create a Protestant make-weight to what appeared till nearly the close of the 17th century, the overwhelming menace of the Spanish and Austrian houses. Such was the policy which the French court wisely pursued during so long a period that it finally acquired the force of a fixed tradition and threatened to last on into an era of new conditions, when it would prove useless or later harmful to the state. The general framework of the anti-Austrian diplomacy did indeed survive from the latter 17th till the middle of the 18th century. One after another, the portions of the old French diplomatic work fell to pieces, as the strength of Spain diminished and the small Protestant states advanced in their cycle of rapid commercial expansion, increasing population and military power. It would not be germane to my subject were I to enter at any length into the gradual transformation of Europe between 1668 and 1741. That first date is that of the treaty, which closed the last clear struggle between France and Spain. The second date is that of the first great battle, Molwitz, in which Prussia under Frederick the Great appeared as a triumphant and equal opponent against the Catholic forces of the empire. It is enough to say that during the period the results of the great struggle were solidified. Europe was now hopelessly, and as it seemed, finally riven asunder, and those who proposed to continue Those who propose to disperse the stream of European tradition gravitated into two camps armed for a struggle, which is not even yet decided. The transition may be expressed as the long life of a man. Nay, it may be exactly expressed in the life of one man, flurry, for he stood on the threshold of manhood, at its commencement and in sight of death as its close. What such a long life witnessed between its 18th and its 19th year, was if the vast confusion of detail be eliminated and large result be grasped, the confirmation of the great schism, and the final decision of France to stand wholly against the North. There appeared at last, fixed and consolidated, a Protestant and a Catholic division in Europe, whose opposing philosophies, seen or unseen, denied, ridiculed or ignored, even by those most steeped in either atmosphere, were henceforth to affect inwardly every detail of individual life as outwardly they were to affect every great event in the history of our race and every general judgment which has been passed upon its actions. The Spanish power, based as it had been not on eternal resources, but on a mere naval and colonial supremacy, could not but rapidly decline. It had long been separated from the German Empire. It was destined to fall into the orbit of France. On the other hand, the England of the early 18th century was no longer a small community absorbed in theological discussion. She had become a nation of the first rank, one that was developing its industries, its wealth, and its armed strength. She boasted in Marlborough the chief military genius of the age. She was already the leader in physics. She was about to be the leader in mechanical science. And she was upon the eve of acquiring a new colonial empire, In France, the privileges of the Huguenots had been withdrawn as the situation grew precise and clear, and the breach between them and the nation was made final by their active and zealous treason in whatever foreign fleets or armies were attempting to ruin of their country. In England, it had been made plain that the oligarchy and the nation upon which it reposed would admit neither a strong central government nor the presence of the Catholic Church near any seat of power. The Stuart dynasty had been exiled. Its first attempt at a restoration had been crushed. Meanwhile, there was preparing a final argument which should compel men to recognise the clean and fixed division of Europe. The argument was the astonishing rise of Prussia, for which the appearance upon the field of this new and strange force, an own child of the reform it was evident that something had changed in the very morals of war. When Austria was at her weakest, when the French court bewildered but weakly constant to our now meaningless diplomatic habit, was watching the apparent dissolution of the empire and was ready to urge its armies against Vienna, when England remained, and the only opposition was the Barbons, the only support of the Habsburgs, there was established, with five years, the permanent strength of Frederick the Great, and the new factor of Prussian power, a complete contempt for the old rules of honor and negotiation and for the old rules of contract in dynastic relations had been crowned by a complete success. This advent, when every exception and cross-influence is forgotten, will remain the chief moral and, therefore, the chief political fact by the 18th century. By the end of the year 1745, Silesia was finally abandoned by Austria. The Prussian soldier and his atheist theory had compassed the first mere conquest of European territory, which had been achieved by any European power since First Europe had been organized into a family of Christian communities. It had been advised for the first time That Europe was not one, but that some unit of it might overbear and rule another by arms alone. That there was no common standard, nor any unseen avenger upon appeal. That theory had appealed to arms and had conquered. Within three years, the international turmoil of which this catastrophe was immeasurably the greatest result was subjected to a sort of settlement. One of those general committees of all Europe, with which our own time is so familiar, was summoned to Ayla chapelle representatives of the various powers confirmed or modified, the results of a group of wars, and in the autumn of 1748, affixed their signatures to a complete arrangement which was well known to be unstable, ephemeral and insincere, but which was yet of tremendous import for its marked, though in no dramatic manner, the end of an old world. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy To Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.